The most priceless possession of the human race is the wonder of the world. Yet latterly, the utmost endeavors of mankind have been directed towards the dissipation of that wonder. Science analyzes everything to its component parts and neglects to put them together again. Nobody any longer may hope to entertain an angel unawares or to meet Sir Lancelot in shining armor on a moonlit road. But what is the use of living in a world devoid of wonderment? Kenneth Graham This is Our Numinous Nature, and I'm your host, Philippe. We'll be hearing the profound stories of people with a deep connection to the natural world, from herbalists to hunters, wildlife rehabilitators to trappers, artists to homesteaders. The list goes on. My hope is to thread a needle that weaves together the many nature-related passions through stories of reverence. In nature, I've found meaning, a richness for life that grows with each new day. Maybe you feel the same, or maybe you long to. Well, that intro quote was read by today's guest, Tom Horton. Um, He was reading an excerpt of his own book where he made a reference to the beginning of that quote. So I went and looked that up and I thought that really feels like the theme of this episode, wonderment, wonderment for nature. So our guest today is Tom Horton. He was an environmental columnist for the Baltimore Sun He's written for National Geographic, Rolling Stone, New York Times. He contributes regularly to the Chesapeake Bay Magazine and the Bay Journal. Um, He's made a handful of documentaries about the Bay, and he teaches writing and environmental studies at Salisbury University. He's also authored half a dozen books um, about the Bay, um, kind of in the category of nature writing. I am in the process of reading two of them. One of them is called Bay Country, and you'll hear an essay from Bay Country. He reads it in this episode. It was one that um, I asked him to read because I loved it so much, and it certainly um, is filled with wonder. And this second book that I've started reading of his is called An Island Out of Time, about when he lived... For three years, he brought his family to take a little break from life, I believe, in Baltimore. Um, They moved to a little uh, crabbing island, a waterman's island, with just um, a few hundred families and uh, I think 150 watermen and and their families. So very few people on a little island out in the bay. Um, And I just started reading the first chapter or so, so I haven't got too deep into it. But um, I'm really enjoying... Tom's style of writing um, that really jumped out at me because it's he. I find he has an extremely unique style, which is really, really cool. Um, it feels like journalism. It feels like nature journalism with the soul of a poet, and absolutely filled with that wonderment from that first quote, that awe for nature. But he has this style where he he weaves in all these ideas and side thoughts, and he'll reference he references all over the place, um, and he kind of weaves together this like very fluid, very it's almost watery, like the bay, 
it almost seems like this very refined and polished and poetic and beautiful stream of conscious. It kind of has a feel like that. Just the way that he moves through ideas and references. It's really a cool style. And I'm thoroughly enjoying reading um, different bits of his work. And so on today's episode, he, so as you've listened with the podcast, we um, have people tell stories. So for authors, I thought it would be really amazing to have them read their stories because obviously my feeling is that that, that is how they can best express themselves when it comes to a numinous story. So today he's going to read two of his stories, both of which are absolutely awesome and about the animals of the bay. So I'm going to leave some links um, in the show notes for his books, for his documentaries. They're all on YouTube. They're kind of um, a PBS vibe. So they're very educational and they're very regional, um, you know, documentaries about the bay, about crabbing, about the watermen, about um, African-American um, village for that has has a very interesting culture for the past 200 years about um, about sea level rising and a handful of other topics. So this is the third episode in the Chesapeake Bay series. Um, the first one, I spoke with a fossil hunter, and so we learned a lot about the ancient natural history of the bay. And then we went and talked with a living historian about pirates, so we learned about history. Both of them were deep into... Um, ghost stories and um, the paranormal. So that was really awesome. But uh, then we went and talked to a folk artist. I'm not sure when that episode or if that episode's going to come out. It was a pretty heavy duty one. So technically this is the third one coming out. And this one, um, now we're talking about the natural history that's on the bay right now. So we learn about a ton of animals. The theme of this episode really seems to be my like mass migrations of creatures and um, spawning, and again, of course, wonder. Where we're going next after this podcast, I have got a handful of leads that are really exciting, but I've learned to no longer say what the next episode is going to be because whenever anytime I do that, it um, I jinx myself. So. We're going to keep going to the Chesapeake Bay. There's a lot about the culture of the people that, that I still want to learn about and share. And we're just going to keep going in the bay. So at some point in the interview, we talked about this eel guy, um, a guy that does all the smoking with eels. And we couldn't remember who he was, but I just thought you might, in, in the event that you want to look into this guy, um, his name is Ray Turner and he's in New York State and he has a business called Delaware Delicacies, Delaware Delicacies Smokehouse, which is on the Delaware River, where he catches eels in a weir, and uh, he smokes them. And he's got a little shop in the woods, and it's a renowned place. And um, I believe Na uh, National Geographic has done like a little documentary on him, which I've seen, a real eccentric um, kind of woodsman. So definitely check that out if you're interested. Um, I guess before we jump into this interview, I just wanted to make two kind of fun comments about Tom. Um, we have a mutual friend, so I, I really appreciative he let me stay at his place. I came the night before the podcast. I slept out on his back porch as it was thundering and raining all night long, and we had some really awesome conversations. 
the two things I really noticed that I thought would be fun to mention is one that he's he's in his mid seventies, but he feels decades younger. And I've been musing on that. And I think that it's when you're so passionate and you have so much wonder, again, this wonder theme, that that is an anti-aging serum, or I don't know what you want to call it, anti-aging medicine is, is the wonder for life. Because I know people the same age as him, younger, even in the 70s, and they're more despondent and heavy and his lightness and his joie de vie, it, it really is anti-aging. And secondly, so Tom lives in Salisbury. The main drag with all these strip malls and whatnot is just one block down from him, two blocks maybe, one block from where he lives. And so he's kind of in a suburb right off the main drag. You know, people have their little yards, but you know, you can see everyone's house and the yards are all well, you know, manicured. Um, you know, some, some people have their little trees sculpted, um, just these kind of quaint little houses in a suburb. And then there's Tom's house and I'm looking for the address from, from my phone. And I'm like, where, I don't even see the house. And then I noticed that one little plot of land, I don't know what it is, maybe half an acre, an acre is completely overgrown. Like you can't even see the house. So you see all these rows of houses down, down a block. And then there's just one square of jungle and he lives inside that jungle. Like you cannot see the house within it from the road. You can't even see the steps to get up to the house. And it's just this at, at all levels from, from, uh, from trees to shrubs to herbs down on the ground or whatever it is. It is a complete all encompassing forest. And when you walk through there and get to his house and you go out on the back porch, his whole backyard is equally as filled up with all sorts of vegetation. And it's really wonderful. It's, it's really charming. So I just thought that was fun. Now, uh, without going on and on, let's just get into this podcast because this is a great one. And I hope that you are enjoying learning about the Bay as I have. Um, and like I said, we're going to keep on going. And I appreciate everyone listening. Thank you very much. And let's get to it. Well, where we are right now is Salisbury, Maryland, my the town I was born in. Uh, it's a town on the mid part, middle part of what we call the eastern shore of Maryland, meaning those counties that lie east of the Chesapeake Bay, most of the people in Maryland, uh, Baltimore, Washington suburbs are on the western shore. Uh, and we think it's a special place. And I've always been uh, pleased that the Baltimore Sun, the uh, newspaper where I made my career, uh, has always uppercased eastern shore and they always lowercase western shore. Uh, and in truth, like Cape Cod or Long Island, uh, the Eastern Shore is kind of, it, it has a regional identity. You know, it, it was pretty much an island uh, until they built the Chesapeake Bay Bridge from Annapolis to Kent Island back in the 50s. And then later on, down at the mouth of the Chesapeake, another 20-some mile bridge. So really, for most of history, the Eastern Shore was practically an island. Yeah, I, I just interviewed this folk artist in Onancock, mm -hmm. and he grew up um, 
down at the very bottom of the of the peninsula yeah. pre-bridge because he's probably in his 60s and he said it was extreme isolation down there before oh, yeah. they put that bridge in yeah it no it, it it was kind of an island and and really connected more to philadelphia and wilmington you know uh, early religions like methodism moved down from philadelphia because that was you crossed less water than chesapeake bay was pretty insulating, isolating, mm. uh, you know, that had good and bad impacts. Mm. But, uh, yeah, so we're on the shore, the eastern shore of Maryland, Salisbury, Maryland, which is the biggest city down here. It's about 40,000, 50,000 people in the area. So uh, it's home. Probably 700 million chickens within a 50, 60-mile radius of us. That's, oh, yeah. Uh, that's one of our other identities. Uh a lot um, of chicken shit down here to deal with <laughs> from a water quality perspective. Well, I think we're going to probably get into that at some yeah, point. Yeah. But so I'm down here because uh, you are a renowned nature writer and um, environmental columnist. Yeah. Well, that's what I've done for a living. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I've read a handful of what you've done. I've watched a bunch of your documentaries. So I want to get in a, a whole bunch of different stuff. But I thought. Um, a cool place to start because of how our very first conversation on the phone was we have a mutual friend and you had told me you and her were just looking at the horseshoe crab spawn. And because you were yeah. saying that th- that is so specifically regional, like yeah. it would be really awesome to people who are listening who are all over America or not even in America, like tell us about the horseshoe crabs. Well, the horseshoe crab one is... Uh more related to spiders than to true crabs. Uh, It is uh, in an order uh, in the animal kingdom called the Ziphosaurs, sword-tailed animals. Mm. Uh, To my knowledge, there are no other Ziphosaurs. It it is the only member of that order. Uh, And they're a weird-looking critter, uh, sort of a helmet-shaped creature. In fact, their shells, very hydrodynamic remind me of that uh, helmet that uh, winged Mercury, if you Hmm. uh, are familiar with the gods, uh, wore. And I wonder Hmm. if it didn't derive from the shape of the horseshoe crab shell. But uh, they're probably, if not the, one of the oldest lived organisms on this planet. Uh, Horseshoe crabs in the fossil record go back 400-some million years with very few changes, which I would say evolutionarily, that's quite a success when you get your act together uh, physiologically and you don't need to change for close to half a billion years. I mean, that's, Perfection. that's a long time ago. That's, that's, uh, there, wasn't, there weren't trees. There wasn't grass. Wow. There weren't dinosaurs. I didn't quite then. know that about the no, no yeah. vegetation yet. No, it's, wow. they predate most of what we would call planet Earth. And here's what's cool about that. Uh, Horseshoe crabs are distributed all up and down America's coastlines. There are a couple species in Asia. But the world epicenter for horseshoe crabs is right in my backyard, Delaware Bay, over near Dover, Wilmington, uh, uh, Rehoboth Beach, that area. And in May, peaking on the full and new moons, these crabs crawl out of the waters and crawl up on the beach and lay their eggs. They spawn. And 
Sometimes for miles, the beach, it looks like cobblestones, just horseshoe crab shells massed on these beaches. There's nowhere else on earth. And this, this is occurs. at night. It peaks at night. Okay. You can see them during the day. Oh, okay. But the coolest thing is uh, a few times I have been out there uh, under the full moon when the crab spawn was peaking. And I'm thinking this whole scene, you've got the moon up there, you've got the lap of waves on a sandy beach and the clicking of these half a billion year old critters. That is a, the most elemental scene. I, I mean, moon and wind and sand and water and these ancient creatures. That's as close as I know how to come to stepping back in time several hundred a million primordial. years. It is just, and then occasionally you'll be grooving on this elemental primordial scene and a C-5A out of Dover Air Force Base will fly by and you think, God you know, I'll bet those crabs have seen stranger than that in in uh, 400 some million years doesn't phase them you know they're just doing their thing so it it is just uh an annual ritual and elemental theme and of course the the press the horseshoe crabs get a lot of press these days because a lot of flights of migratory shorebirds depend on meeting that spawn and chowing down on the eggs for nutrition on their flight from as far away as Argentina moving up toward the Arctic. Oh, I didn't know that at all. Yeah, it's it's a it's a vital fueling station for a lot of these birds, some of whom aren't doing too well. I, I think if you go back a few hundred years, those birds had multiple fueling stations eating lots of stuff along the coasts of South America and North America on their way up. But the, the crabs put the eggs down in the sand? They do, but a lot of them are on the top and the birds okay. peck. It's interesting because the the eggs aren't very good nutrition. There's mm. just a lot of them. Mm. So these birds will peck and peck and peck for two weeks to get the fat they need. Mm. But uh, I, I think once they had a lot of rest stops along their migratory route and now development and pollution and so forth has taken a lot of those stops out. So Delaware Bay has probably become more important than it should. You know, you don't want to bet the ranch on one place because a year ago or two years ago, the spawn was a bit delayed. A lot of these shorebirds, mm. like the red knots, whose numbers are in trouble, uh, missed it. And they went on, and about 40% of them died. Oh, man. Because uh, they didn't get that fuel, and they didn't have another stop. So you you re really would rather Delaware Bay's horseshoe crab spawn wasn't as important. Mm. Uh, it, it's a kind of a bet the ranch thing for some birds now. But it is a, are, it are, is a sight to see. Are all of the eastern coast um, crabs coming in to that spot? No. Okay. These, uh, these crabs, we don't know a heck of a lot about these horseshoe crabs when they, they spend the rest of their year roaming the continental shelves. They're not mm. deep ocean critters. Uh, how far out they go, uh, there are a few tagging surveys, but uh, always hard to tag animals that shed their shells every time they need to grow. But uh, they they spend their time out on the continental shelves. And the, the Delaware Bay crabs are probably coming from, you know, maybe 
50, 60, maybe 100 miles away, but they mm. don't come from Georgia and Maine. Okay. And you'll see horseshoe crab spawning up and down the coast okay. uh, and in the Chesapeake, but nothing like Delaware Bay. Okay. That, that is the world epicenter. Man, I would love to see that one day. And, I mean, you think of all the these crabs, I think there have been three, four, five Nobel Prizes won researching uh, the crabs based on their blood. Their blood is the most gorgeous royal blue. It's copper-based. It's not iron-based mm. like ours, which produces a red blood. But uh, uh, their blood has been the subject of a lot of research. They have an unparalleled ability to... Uh, coagulate their blood if they're wounded they can clot instantly so that's lent itself to a lot of uh, medical uh, uh, purposes for yeah. blood clotting and testing antibiotic testing new drugs uh, they they can use horseshoe crab serum to do that so they're a, they're a pretty fascinating critter out of another time yeah npr has a radio show and a podcast called um um fresh air is that yeah. what it's called? Well, there is a fresh air on no, NPR. No, but I might be talking about another one. Oh, no, Radiolab. Uh -huh. So they have one called Radiolab, and they did a whole episode about the the how they harvest the blood because they, they'll take the oh, horseshoe yeah, crabs, yeah. Oh, yeah, but I've then they have to the... return them because they're, try, it's, they're trying to be a no-kill anymore. They're trying to just tap them. Yeah, the FDA actually regulates that, and I, I think they, they have figured out there's more mortality from that harvest than they originally thought because i believe yeah that. i've i've watched some people bleed horseshoe crabs they thought they could take 75 percent of their blood and i think that was a, that's a lot of blood to take from anything and uh i think they have reined that in a bit yeah so uh, we we are so weird i mean what a weird thing to do to yeah. take an take animals tap them for their blood and then put them back pretty weird nature's storehouse everything put there for humans that's mm -hmm. the that's the that's still all too often the driving uh the doctrine so yeah so i think we're gonna just ride from one topic to the next sure so the first thing i ever read so early may we did a little eastern shore trip me and my girlfriend and we were in chincoteague and she took a paper we were having lunch you know outside and she grabbed a local paper and I can't remember which one it was, but I think it was, it's like the whole thing is an environmental paper, like the Chesapeake something maybe. Oh, well, it could have been the Bay Journal, which it might I, have been I do a column for. Yeah, That's it's, it. it's, we're, we're a nonprofit, uh, good little newspaper, monthly devoted to coverage of Chesapeake Bay. And, and we occasionally will slop over into the coastal bays of Chincoteague and Assateague and, uh, you know, but... But yeah, yeah, we cover the Chesapeake watershed. So what I read was your your recent article about the beavers. Oh and yeah. So because I've done, I do a little bit of trapping, <clears throat> and we eat a lot of beavers. We at, think they're the coolest. Like just like going when when I'm when I'm going to a property that has like the lodges and everything, just walking yeah. around, looking at the roads that they create. It's fun, unbelievable. Looking at yeah. all the trees they down. I think in our area. I was looking this winter, and I think they were actually eating a lot of the tulip poplars, I believe. But, well, um, you know, taking there's, down there's big There's not trees. much. It's like when you start talking about what can you plant that deer won't eat. Uh, there ain't much deer and beavers won't eat in a pinch. In fact, uh, I've seen beavers chew on even something as, as gummy as a pine tree. Hmm. And the biologists say that's generally juvenile beavers, like teenagers okay. everywhere. They just chew because they got to chew. They, they, <laughs> it really doesn't make much sense. They're just 
they just just want to chew. So uh, yeah, beavers. Uh, there there are not many trees that are off limits to beavers. So yeah, so you've been telling me that you are currently doing a documentary about the beavers and about how they've affected the Chesapeake Bay. So. Uh, you know, you told me a bit about it last night, but like, go into it. To, like, let's hear about that. Well, the film we're making, which we're doing under the auspices of the Bay Journal, is uh, called Water's Way, Thinking Like a Watershed. And Thinking Like a Watershed is a, a ripoff of Aldo Leopold's famous essay written in the 40s, Thinking Like a Mountain, where Leopold recounted uh, as a young trigger-happy hunter shooting a mother wolf and her cubs on the theory prevalent at the time that uh, the fewer wolves there were, the more deer there would be for hunters, and no wolves at all would mean hunter's paradise. And of course, as he came to understand and recounted in Thinking Like a Mountain, what the mountain feared was the loss of its wolves because then the deer unbound by predation would eat the mountain alive. So it was basically an early uh, exercise in showing people how to think ecologically. Don't just look at one part, look at think like a mountain. He said only the mountain has lived long enough to understand these lessons. So we're kind of calling our film thinking like a watershed and what we're doing is we're setting the stage. Well, with, do you want to tell, say what your little um, predicament? Well, well, here's here's the way we start the we start the film with uh, this. This film's about a guy who shot a wolf in Arizona a century ago, and it's about a guy me who executed a beaver <laughs> about ten years ago, and they're linked because neither Leopold, who was a father of conservation and wildlife ecology, uh, an incredible man, neither Leopold nor I at those times yet knew how to think ecologically. We were looking at a part. He was looking at a wolf that threatened what he liked to hunt, deer. I was looking at the beaver only in terms of something that had just chewed down three or four trees that I had planted the day before and whose dam was threatening to flood a little bit of my yard. And I just reacted just as he did. And I did not appreciate that for millennia, the entire watershed of the Chesapeake and in fact, the entire landscape of North America were totally dominated and controlled by beavers. I mean, you know, you talk about Star Trek uh, terraforming where they throw some seeds out and transform a planet. Beavers were terraformers on a scale that may be only matched by modern humans, but their terraforming, at least ecologically, was profoundly more affirming than our terraforming. Ours is cutting and ditching and paving and plowing. Theirs was damming and ponding and holding back the water, filtering out the pollution, creating incredible wetland habitats for all manner of bird and fish and amphibian. Uh, if you wanted to, you name the watershed, the creek, the river, anywhere in North America, if you wanted to take it back as close as you could to horseshoe crab time, primeval, primordial time, I would say bring in a few families of beavers and stand back hmm. because they will transform it. And it won't, 
it won't be to everyone's liking. Mm -hmm. A lot of trees die, big trees, when beavers start ponding and damming because Mm -hmm. they can't take the water. So this notion we have today of Oh, you mean just the the actual flooding kills the trees? The actual flooding kills the trees. Well, the beavers chew a lot of them down, too. Uh They feed on the inner bark of trees. They use trees for dams. Uh, Sometimes they'll just chew a tree, a big old tree, and and leave it with girdled, and the tree's going to die, and who knows why they did it, what their plan was. Uh, Beavers are... uh, they don't have very big brains, even for their body size. Uh, they don't have good eyesight. They're they're not an intelligent animal, but boy, are they instinctual and relentless. But you can't they, you can't help but um, but uh, <coughs> anthropomorphize them. It's like you see these construct. It literally looks like yeah. a construction site. Oh yeah, and like literally, engineers. yeah, and literally looks like roads. And then yeah. you look at the dams. You look at the um, lodges, and you cannot help but think that they're like little people. And I know that a lot of Native American myths, they were, I think, believe that they were kind of yeah. seen as little people. Well, they're kind of cute. They really are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and this, this film is about more than beavers. This, this film is about what the Ches- how the Chesapeake Bay operated uh, in times past and all the ways humans changed that. Uh, by eliminating the beavers, for one thing. And then we go into how might we restore some of that original order and resilience and health to the Chesapeake by emulating what the beavers did on its landscapes to control the flows of water, to retard the the march of pollution downstream. Uh, And uh, part of that emulating is just bringing beavers back. We can't go back to the original beaver populations. There's too many darn humans around anymore. But there's a lot of scope for beavers are coming back. (laughs) So I want to ask, naturally, are they being um, relocated and whatnot? Pretty much naturally. I mean, we say beavers were extirpated from the Chesapeake region by 1750. Hmm. Uh, They they weren't literally extinct. There were always a few hanging on and... uh, there may have been some relocation in parts of the bay, maybe in the 40s and 50s, but beavers beavers will come back. Uh, they, well, you, so amongst all the trapping stuff I listen to, they say the last beaver is extremely hard to trap. So it's pretty cool to know that the Chesapeake Bay might be filled with the ancestors of oh yeah. the, the, the super smart ones. Well, the area where I killed the beaver and where I'm living now uh, it was one of the last parts of Maryland that the colonial government let settlers come in and push the Native Americans out. And hmm. the reason is it was the last place uh, beavers were were prolific. Uh, they were the, the colonials were getting such a good stream of furs, hmm. which they desired from the Indians, that they let them alone until the fur trade ran out. And this was one of the last strongholds of the beaver, and it's where the beavers are coming back pretty strongly now. It's just a good place for beavers. Hmm. Uh, so I uh, I hope our uh, film uh, uh, gives people a sense, one, of how critical beavers and beaver-like uh, landscapes are to the health of the Chesapeake, and also how you can live with beavers, because hmm. you can to a much greater extent. P- 
people think all you can do is trap them. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of ways you can uh, put simple devices into their ponds that keep them from flooding your property, mm. but leave enough water for the beavers' pond levelers. It's basically just tubing mm-hmm. that carries the water under their dam. Low maintenance. And, That's cool. And these things uh, are a lot cheaper than trapping because trapping's kind of forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, unless you really go scorched earth, the beavers keep coming back. Oh, yeah. You have to keep hiring the trapper. So uh, there's a beaver institute in Massachusetts that is training people in every state on the East Coast uh, who can show landowners how to live with beavers. Oh, that's cool. And if I had a couple million, I'd give it to the beaver institute uh, uh, so they could train people. I, I think you could see a lot of people making a living uh, as beaver control, as live with beaver people. Oh, that's neat. Uh, so yeah, so I I think our film's gonna. That I'm I'm pretty uh, I'm pretty happy with it. It's a low budget production, but we do the best we can. So I told you that um, I was surprised. You know, I've I've learned quite a bit about beaver biology and whatnot, even if I can't have it all memorized. But I yeah. was quite surprised that they can handle the brackish water. They can. Uh, there are beavers, I think, on the west coast, literally down in marine environments. Mm. Now, if you get a beaver in a big river where they've got enough water to feel safe, they don't build dams. They may live in the banks. Yeah, bank dams. So you don't, uh, people often ask me, well, why didn't beavers dam the Potomac River? Mm-hmm. Well, they don't need to dam the Potomac River. One, it's a big river, but they can they can live along the banks of the Potomac. They, they make ponds, basically, so they'll have enough water to be safe because a beaver in the water, not much is going to mess with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, on land, they're they're pretty slow and helpless and easily. Well, and and uh, it's again, I sorry to keep bringing it back to trapping, but but um, it's supposedly known that every predatory creature loves beaver meat. So I'm sure when they're out on the land, like yeah. everything wants them—a bobcat, a coyote. Oh yeah, you know, any everybody loves that. No, I a uh, friend of mine in bears. Uh, friend of mine in southern virginia has a farm and his night vision cameras have picked up bobcats uh, carrying Oof. young beavers <gasps> they've caught across the dam wow so bobcats are definitely in in i wonder if the bobcat tries to pull them out of the tries to break open the i wonder i don't think a bobcat could break mm. open a beaver it just lodge. waits till they come out maybe maybe a bear could break open yeah, a beaver yeah. lodge but it doesn't do them any good because the beavers have underwater escape right, routes of course, you know if you course, break open the lodge course. you won't find any beavers in there of course so uh but yeah beavers i i think calorically and fat wise their meat is just primo nutrition you know you you couldn't if you were looking to feed yourself and get healthy again after a lean winter you couldn't do better than mm. a, a beaver cutlet Mm. Yeah, pretty pretty rich, tasty meat. I've I've had beaver. Uh, unfortunately, the first one I had had been on the bottom of a freezer for four or five years, and it wasn't much. But it's uh, it's pretty tasty. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I told you last night that the only meat we've eaten this week was a few of them. So it's awesome to know uh, that they're making such a comeback, I guess, in the Bay, and that has such a great effect. Yeah, I think, no, my my hope, I, I don't have unrealistic visions, but my hope is that we could dramatically increase the presence of beavers throughout the Chesapeake Bay watershed. I should mention, too, uh, Philippe, that 
we worry more about land use vis-a-vis the Chesapeake than most places in the world do with their water bodies. And the reason is the watershed of the Chesapeake is huge. It starts in Cooperstown, New York. I, so I it, saw that it, in the front of your book. Yeah. That blew me away. It, it stretches. Yeah, the Baseball Hall of Fame. I actually got to put a sign up right outside the Baseball Hall of Fame that says, this is where the Chesapeake starts. It's the headwaters of the Susquehanna River, Lake Otsego. But it goes out into West Virginia, the Potomac drainage. It goes well, down where to Lynchburg. I live, where yeah. I live in the Blue Ridge Mountains. All like Literally, yeah. I can go like five minutes from where I live is the beginning of, of the Rappahannock River. It's a tiny oh, yeah. creek. It's a tiny little creek. Well, here's the thing. You've got, basically, the watershed of the Chesapeake is about a sixth of the whole East Coast. It's it's everything south of Vermont and north of North Carolina out into West Virginia. But that's just half of it. you, you got all this land, 64,000 square miles, 40-odd rivers draining it. And then it goes into this place, the Chesapeake Bay, that looks big. It's a couple hundred miles long, up to 30 miles wide, but there ain't much water in it. The The bay, I tell my students, the bay is about a million feet long from Haver to Grace, Maryland to Norfolk, Virginia. It's up to 100,000 feet wide. Its average depth is 21 feet. Yeah, so, that's so it, cool. it looks, it's broad and it's long, but it's skinny. So the bottom line is you have all of this land from, from New York to North Carolina draining into a shallow little pond. Mm. Now, we have ocean flushing tides come in and out, or the bay would have been dead long ago, but they're wimpy tides, just a, a foot and a half, two-foot tides. You so, mean dead dead from pollution? Or uh, dead from what? Uh, it would have been dead from pollution. Yeah. yeah, if the bay were just a shallow pond, mm. the ocean tides and mm-hmm. the flushing help a lot. But uh, we have all this land draining into not very much water with fairly limited tidal flushing. Uh, you know, you go up to Long Island Sound, you've got five, six-foot tides, a mm. lot more flushing back and forth. Down here, pretty pretty moderate. So we worry a lot about land use. Uh, if it's in forest, that's good. If it's paved for a parking lot, that's bad. Mm. If it's plowed for farming, that's not good. Somewhere in between paving and so forth, housing developments. Uh and that's why to to really restore Chesapeake Bay, which is not as healthy as it was by a long shot, even since I was a kid in the 50s, uh, to restore Chesapeake Bay, we have got to keep the landscape more open, resilient, uh, mm. wetter. Everybody knows the Chesapeake pre-European 500 years ago was green. It was mostly forest. What they don't understand is it was green and it was wet. Mm. Uh, All these beaver ponds, all these beaver fostered wetlands and uh, wetlands are not only primo habitat, but they do an exceedingly good job of filtering out a lot of the pollutants that Mm. plague the Chesapeake if they get down into the bay. So, uh, it was just a place with much cleaner, healthier water than than we can even imagine, mm. and it was mainly because of beavers. Wow! So, so how so that will help filter all this runoff? Because yeah. I saw something in one of your documentaries. Also, having farmers having um, like a wood line before it hits the water. 
Yeah. I think that was another kind of solution. Yeah, we're doing a lot of things to try to help the bay. We're planting trees between farm fields in the bay, uh, using stormwater ponds to capture the water. A lot of that is basically emulating what beavers Mm, do. mm. But just to give you an example, without getting too technical, the biggest single pollutant of the bay is nitrogen. The the bay is over-fertilized. It gets too much nitrogen, too much phosphorus, grows a lot of algae. The Mm. algae murks up the water, sucks up the oxygen, kills the other life in the bay. So how do you cut down on fertilizer? Uh, which comes from sewage, it comes from farmland, it comes from car exhaust, it comes from dirty air. Hmm. Uh, When nitrogen in polluting forms like nitrates and nitrites enters a wetland, which could be a beaver pond, Hmm. uh, it undergoes chemical processes that send it back up into the atmosphere, which is about 78% into nitrogen gas. That's what you want it to do. Wow. It goes back up into the air and it doesn't bother anything and we happily breathe it. So that's what happens when the biggest pollutant of the bay hits a beaver marsh. Wow. Is it beaver goes filters. back up. Yeah, it's like boom. Well, uh, these billion dollar modern sewage treatment plants that we're using in DC and mm. Richmond and places like that, they take the same process. They do it chemically and mechanically, and, mm. and it costs a friggin' fortune, but uh, beavers don't charge. Mm. I think if they charged, we'd probably have a, a better, a better, an easier path of saying they're valuable. Mm. You know, nature does a lot of these ecosystem services, sequestering carbon, mm. gassing nitrogen back up to the air. I think if we got a bill for it every week, we'd be more conscious of it, but we don't. So, gosh, did we just ruin something? We didn't know it was doing mm. any good. It wasn't charging us. So, mm. yeah, you you mentioned uh, you'd like to help relocate beavers. Right That'd now so in fun. Maryland, it is pretty much impossible legally to relocate beavers. It's an artifact of an earlier time when we weren't really thinking about the need to do that. Mm. And uh, I think even the wildlife officials in Maryland uh, would not oppose changing it. But there's just a lot of things, small but important things, that have to change if we're really going to seriously restore beavers. A lot of it's education. If I were running an environmental education group in the Chesapeake region, I would make sure one of my next hires was either smart about beavers or or was going to get smart about beavers because I think uh, they are they could be a major tool for restoring health to the Chesapeake and just increasing biological diversity. You know, we've got some farmers up in northern Maryland who have become fans of beavers since they found out how many ducks come in in the winter to mm-hmm. a beaver pond. Mm-hmm. They like duck hunting. Mm-hmm. Some of them have rented their beaver ponds to duck hunters. Uh, but so I, cool. I would like to see a time when a farmer or a large landowner could get a cash payment, a tax credit, whatever, from the states of Maryland, Virginia, the Bay States for introducing beavers because they would be reducing pollution to the Bay which otherwise we'd have to spend a lot of money to reduce through sewage treatment or stormwater detention ponds or, or whatever. So, uh, so I, cool. I think that would spread it, and it would be a voluntary thing. And I, I don't know how far it can go. 
you, you know, the, the carrying capacity of the Chesapeake watershed for beavers would permit millions more. <laughs> the cultural carrying capacity, i.e. people's willingness to tolerate them, is mm -hmm. going to be the controlling thing. Mm. And I think we can move the needle on that, uh, increase it through education. Is there and an estimate on how many are in there right now? For the Chesapeake, um, well, I can give you nationally, and these are back of the envelope, but nationally we think uh, there were originally maybe several hundred million beavers yes, in North America. Uh, there are probably 10, 15 million now. So they're, they're hardly an endangered species. Yes. But, uh, you know, between several hundred million and 10 or 15 million, where can we go? Mm -hmm. uh, I, I don't know. I it's, don't know. The capacity's so, there. It's so cool just, you know, where I live in the Blue Ridge Mountains, the base of the Shenandoah National Park. I can drive like 10 minutes in three different directions and find a lodge, like in the woods, yeah. like on creeks and stuff. And it, that's just on private property, but you can see it from the road. Yeah. But it's just, that's so neat. Well, you know, if you drive anywhere around the mid-Atlantic states anyway, you see all these old names like Beaver Dam Road, yep. Beaver Lodge mm -hmm. Lane, uh, Beaver Stick uh, Trail. You know, beavers were clearly, well, they were, they were the controllers of the hydrology of North America, mm -hmm. pure and simple. Uh, they are as much they they are the classic keystone species where if you pull them out of the system, so many other species collapse. And you know, we we think beavers build dams because we can see the dams. What beavers do just as well is they dig. Hmm. They deepen their ponds, they cut deep ditches to connect their ponds. Beavers are diggers as well as dammers. Hmm. And, of course, that all creates more habitat as mm. they deepen those ponds for fish and, uh, and uh, waterfowl and so forth. Uh, there's so many ways. Ironically, one of the great aids to settlers moving west was all these trapped-out beaver ponds had become lush meadows, all that rich sediment that mm. had accumulated. They were like little oases where the settlers all knew they had crude maps. They stopped. They could graze their cattle, let them fatten up. Their their uh, wagon horses would eat. So even in their demise, beavers really facilitated So in the humans. short term, in the short term after their demise, it had these must really... have seemed a bonus, yeah. Wow. Yeah, it was like when they first started to break up the oyster reefs in the Chesapeake. It actually, the oysters grew bigger and fatter because they weren't in clumps. They were spread mm. out over the bottom. It must have seemed like the best of both worlds. We, we, they're easier to harvest now that we busted up the reefs with big dredge boats, uh, and the oysters grow bigger. And, of course, Short it also term. made them more vulnerable to sediment covering them up and to being caught. And, but, yeah, sometimes when you disrupt the natural order, in the early stages, it seems like a win-win. You put a couple cabins with septic tanks on your pristine trout lake, and the trout get bigger. Hmm. You put a couple hundred septic tanks, and the trout die because there's too much pollution. So it's, it's not that unusual for early on in human disruption to actually see things blossom. I've Humans, never heard that before. That's well, fascinating. Well, it's pretty pretty, pretty evident. I think if you went back 
a thousand years on the Chesapeake, oysters would grow a lot slower because there weren't the nutrients. Hmm. The first injection of nitrogen and phosphorus from early colonial farming and and wastes going in the water probably made the bay system more productive, uh, maybe even a little bit more diverse and lush. But the problem is it didn't stop there. It never does. Fascinating. So, yeah, uh, sometimes I'm not sure if we had it in our power, we'd take the Chesapeake back a thousand years. I mean, I might want to go back about 186 or something, you know, if we could dial it in. Get hit the sweet spot. Yeah, there there was probably a sweet spot where a few humans in the system, hmm. it, it really blossomed. Hmm. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, you can't. It's not like turning a dial, unfortunately. Uh, but I do think, yeah, I, I, I think the uh, importance, be, beavers are, uh, you know, there's a term I've come across recently, ecological amnesia, meaning uh, a natural system's been gone so long or has been so far departed from its original state that we don't even know what it was. And I think that's the case with the beaver-dominated Chesapeake. Mm. I, I don't think we... No one's ever seen water that clear and clean, mm. a landscape that diverse with all manner of life that wet. And, of course, you know, if you want to boil it right down, the two keystone species, the two big terraformers, uh, shapers of the Bay watershed and North America are these creatures of the wet, beavers. They like it wet and swampy mm-hmm. and marshy. Creatures of the dry, humans. We mm-hmm. like to ditch and drain so we can get our combines on the field for the mm-hmm. harvest. It's this big clash, uh, terraformers of the wet and terraformers who like it dry. Mm. And uh, guess who's won? Mm. But uh, in the long run, I'm, I might bet on the beavers. Mm. In the long run, I'm betting on the horseshoe crabs. They'll yeah, <laughs> be here yeah, another yeah, I'm, I'm not, I'm not worried. half billion. I'm not worried about the horseshoe crabs, yeah. Okay, well, you're going to do some reading of, of some of your writing, but I think before that, I, another topic I really want to cover. Um, in one of your documentaries, I believe it was The High Tide in um, Dorchester County. Is that how Dorch- you Dor- Dorchester. Dorchester. Yeah. Dorchester. If Dorchester. If you want to pretend you're from here, Dorchester, yeah. And I feel like this is a topic that um, people listening might find really interesting. I certainly did, which is um, the, rising, the rising sea. And yeah. I, it seems as though the Chesapeake Bay is like ground zero for an example of it. And also, um, to me, just on a like story element, it almost, I mean, this, to me, this is almost like a mythological story. I mean, like land, like people's communities disappearing into the ocean or into the bay. And, um, like in your documentary, you know, I, I like, um, you know, I told you before, I love ghost stories. I love stuff like that. I love like, you know, Edgar Allan Poe, a Gothic, yeah. Southern Gothic. So it's seeing in your documentary, this one island that used to have entire villages and houses on it. And now it's just these old trees that have died from the salt yeah. water, these snags. And yeah. oh, the only thing on the island is a, are, is a graveyard and uh, yeah. like caskets are the, the, it are being washed. The, um, the embankments are being washed away and caskets are just being pulled into the chest. I'm like, my God, like, this is yeah. like, this is Edgar Allan Poe. Yeah. And so, and you know, it's almost like, and also like what comes to mind, obviously is like at Atlantis, just like drowning villages. Yeah. And so I would love for you to just talk about, um, 
I mean, obviously it's sad in many ways, but just what's going on with the rising rising well, sea. Well, uh, with, with rising sea level, here's the big picture. The Chesapeake Bay uh, is especially vulnerable to climate-induced sea level rise, uh, not just because the water level in the bay is coming up and the lands around the edges of the bay are often very low-lying, easily flooded, already marsh. Uh, we got another thing going on. The land around the Chesapeake is sinking. Uh, mm. A lot of explanations, groundwater withdrawals down in the Tidewater, Virginia, Norfolk, Virginia Beach, but also because the glaciers 20,000 years ago, they didn't come down to the Chesapeake, but they got close down into south-central Pennsylvania, and the weight of all that ice bulged up the land for a couple hundred miles south, which was Chesapeake Bay. Hmm. And that land is, over the next many centuries, settling back to its original contour. So we've got sea level rising land sinking. We've got an effective rate of sea level rise that's that's way more than the global average. Hmm. So that brings us to Dorchester County. Maryland has 20-some counties, 23, I think. Dorchester is the largest. It is also the lowest lying. Uh, several years ago, my photographer, cinematographer, Dave Harp, and I were tooling along in our kayaks, and I pointed to a shoreline. We were in Dorchester, and I said, that's where I used to play softball when I was a kid. And he said, where? And I said, there. He said, well, that's open water. I said, yes, indeed it is. That used to be my dad's hunting and fishing cabin. And he said, well, you know, that that might be a pretty good way to get into a story about sea level rise. And, of course, it's a combination. It's erosion, which has been going on forever. Uh, and it's also sea level rise, which is making the rate of erosion faster. Mm. So, basically, since I was a kid in the 50s playing softball out there, probably 150, 200 feet of shoreline has gone to open water. Mm. So we start the film with a couple things. One, Maryland's biggest county by 2100 is going to be Maryland's 14th biggest county. Mm. And that's how bad sea level rise is going to affect Dorchester County because it's, it's a low-lying county. It's sort of, you know, it sounds like a cliche, but I think we actually say it in the film in Dorchester, the future is now. Mm. And that's why we chose it, because you don't have to say in 50 years, you're not going to believe it. We can look. It's happening with, right now. Here's Horton. He's up to his butt in water with a softball in his hand. This was center field, folks. And it was center field in his lifetime. And everybody says, oh, that's amazing. Your old ball field is underwater. The fact is, I could show them three or four of my old ball fields that mm -hmm. are underwater, and so could a lot of other people who grew up around that part of the eastern shore. It, it's happening. So, And people we, float their houses, right, back inland. People have, like back in the like. Oh, yeah. Well, you can, go, you can go to Crisfield, a town here on the eastern shore of Maryland, and uh, right after you pass the McDonald's, the next— 10 or 12 houses uh, were uh, sitting on an island out in the Chesapeake 100 years ago. The island is now almost gone. Mm. The whole population moved in in the uh, early 1900s, moved their houses, took them apart board by board, brick by brick in the chimneys, moved them 
to the mainland and re-erected them. Incredible. I can only conclude that materials were scarce or expensive and labor was cheap. Mm. Uh, I once talked to a, an old guy who, as a kid, had been paid like 10 cents a day to move bricks from chimneys when they were moving these houses off the islands. So, yeah, Holland Island, uh, the graves are washing in the water. The uh, houses are all moved. The island itself. We we still go there and camp usually on the winter solstice. Uh, I saw that. And uh, So cool. There's not much out there now, but a few old dead trees, a bunch of swans kind of sitting out there baying in the night off the uh, island. It, it's a cool campsite, but you have to, to shake yourself to – to realize this was a thriving community with banks and softball fields and stores and little restaurants and a, a fleet of boats for over 200 years. And and now, it, I mean, places I pitched my tent, uh, we did a kayak trip after 9-11. What was that, 2001, I think, something like that? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh where I pitched my tent, it, it's open water now. Mm. And, and I was sleeping comfortably there not that long ago. Uh, we also, to get back to our High Tide movie, we had a uh, unique preview of sea level rise in 2003. We had a hurricane that came up. It wasn't bad wind by the time it got to the Chesapeake. Hurricane Isabel, 2003, October, I think. Uh it caused the biggest storm surge in the bay in recorded history, mm. uh, five to seven feet. Dorchester County had a surge of about five and a half feet, which is about what current projections put sea level rise by 2100. Mm. So it was kind of a preview of 2100. It covered with water 55% of Maryland's biggest county. 55%. And and sea level rise projections, I think, are going to turn out to be bigger than that. So for a few days, uh, we saw what that's going to look like, mm. except in 2100, it'll be every day. Mm. And then if you get a five and a half foot storm surge on top of that. Fill in the whole thing. Hell. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that was, that was uh, so a lot of people really urged us to make a more global film, but that was, you know, why would we make a global film? People like Leonardo DiCaprio, who have a few more resources mm. than Dave and Tom, are doing that, and they're doing a good job of it. So we went the other way, like hyper-local. Yeah, and, I liked that And I think, it, I, I think it was the right decision. because totally. we, It tells we, the same message. You get it. Same message, it's so, and it's very personal. It actually probably personal. tells it better. Yeah. Because it's so specific it really makes it, yeah. you really understand what you're looking at. But I think, uh, you know, Dave really drove the film because he, uh, to me, it's like I told a dozen people, you know, where I used to play ball is now ass deep in the water. Uh, he saw it instantly as, wow, that's an image. That's yes, a way to lead in. And, and that's, uh, you know, that, that, <laughs> that may be that may be the only thing I'm remembered for when I'm gone is standing up to my ass in water with a softball in my hand looking kind of goofy. Like, <laughs> why is he doing that? So that's okay. Now, a part of that documentary that I didn't quite realize is that when the salt water comes in, it completely kills off. Like, it completely changes all of the vegetation. 
Well, I didn't realize know, that. Yeah, so all the, salt, the big trees basically die out and it switches into... Yeah, salt is a, a tough thing for most plants on Earth to handle. There are only a handful of species, the marsh grasses, that uh, some of the underwater vegetation that can handle salt. Uh, it's just hard. So uh, what we're seeing in Dorchester more and more, what's come to be called ghost forests, these... Mm. Uh, big stands of trees, often pines, because they can stand a fair amount of water, the loblolly pines, and even some salt, but they've got their limits. And we've noticed this over the last 30, 40 years. We do a lot of kayaking in Dorchester County because it's sort of like uh, Venice, you know, it, you can get anywhere by water, more and more so. But we're seeing more and more uh, ghostly white forests. The trees are dead, just the trunks are left. They're bleaching white in the sun, uh, ghost forests. And often when uh, people who don't believe in climate change tell me, it's just erosion, Tom. It's nothing more than erosion. Of course, it's erosion driven by sea level rise. But I say, well, look at these pictures we took of forests dying. They're 10 miles inland. There's no erosion there. There's there's no water lapping at them. It's just the water table rising, getting saltier, tides coming in on storm tides. Uh, what's your answer to that? And they don't have a very good answer, you know. So, uh, yeah, the ghost forests are, uh, I, I fear, we're going to lose a lot of, mm, of Dorchester's uh, woodlands. Well, I know we are. We're going to lose a lot of Dorchester physically. Mm. It'll still be the biggest county in Maryland because the boundaries, you know, you count open water. Mm. But by land, it'll mm -hmm. be the 14th biggest or, or thereabouts. Yeah. Hmm. So, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, for me, it's it's hard to get my head around because uh, Dorchester County has been my stomping grounds for fishing, hunting, kayaking, mm. just marsh mucking, all the things I've done for my life and my living uh, since I was a kid uh, in the 1950s. Mm. Uh, and to think that in my lifetime, big chunks of that have disappeared and more will disappear if I live another 10 or 15 years. So, yeah. So we've had a great conversation thus far, and now, because you are a renowned writer, we want to hear you read some of your writing. So you shared with me a handful of stories, and you kind of let me pick which sure. ones I really liked, and the one you're about to read was, is really wonderful. So go for it. I've written about Chesapeake Bay for just about 50 years, and one of the first things you learn is that to understand the Chesapeake, you have to also understand its watershed, these lands that drain into it from across six states. And after that, I learned that you also have to think about what we call the airshed of the Chesapeake, and that is an area stretching as far as Canada and Kentucky where prevailing winds deliver substantial amounts of pollution to the Chesapeake. And lately, I've begun to cast my net even a little wider and think about what I would call the bay's migration shed. Uh, 
I need a less clunky term. But anyway, what I'm talking about is the these myriad uh, seasonal comings and goings of fish and fowl and even insects that weave the Chesapeake so richly into far-flung context, like tundra swans come here every November all the way from the north slope of Alaska. Shad and herring, uh, summer up in the Bay of Fundy in Nova Scotia and connect the bay to that. Eels have this great autumn exodus to the Sargasso Sea from every creek on the Chesapeake. So they just sort of weave us into a much bigger and richer context and and enhance our, our appreciation. And I'm going to tell you a little bit now about one of the ones that uh, I think are the loveliest uh, uh, parts of this migration shed. Uh, And here's what I wrote. Uh, I start with a quote from a favorite poet of mine. John has never studied Greek, but he knows the Chesapeake. That's a poem called River Schooling by Gilbert Byron. So you study nature your whole life, and then you see something entirely new in a place you've been a hundred times. And that's how it was one day when I happened on the miracle bush. I was paddling along the edge of a river, draining, draining one of the great Chesapeake tide marshes for half an hour one afternoon, when I became aware of another river flowing over and around my kayak. It was a procession of monarchs, the annual migration that funnels the butterflies from all across eastern North America to a few winter roosts in central Mexico, so sequestered that scientists searched nearly half a century before finding them in 1975. It was the first day of fall, brisk and blowy. The tide was ebbing, exposing a couple feet of rich brown marsh bank, topped by thick ranks of spartina grasses that tossed and gleamed in the late afternoon sun. Tucked under the lee of the bank in my kayak, I glided in near calm, watching the north wind splay dark cat's paws out across the river, building to white caps in the channel. The monarchs followed the edge, too, handling twenty-knot gusts with the aplomb of falcons. They fly singly or in pairs and threes. All afternoon, I never saw more than a dozen of them at once. But there's never a moment when several weren't in sight. They were moving considerably faster than the five miles an hour I manage in a kayak, frequently flitting several yards out over the water, then tacking inland, then down the edge. It looks inefficient, but we, who send mechanical probes to the moons of Jupiter, know little about how an insect weighing less than a gram with orange and black-veined wings, delicate as tissue paper, navigates from Maine to Mexico. None of the sojourners brightly flickering down the edges of the marsh this day has any acquaintance with where they are unerringly headed for mountain valleys 10,000 feet high, 1,500 miles away. They are generations removed from the monarchs that last spring mated and reproduced and died in the highlands west of Mexico City, spawning successive waves of offspring that did the same, leapfrogging their species north all summer across the continent north. The onset of chilly water has arrested this cycle, delayed sexual maturity in these autumn travelers, who will instead put their energy into traveling south to restart the whole grand show next spring. Some scientists believe the origins of the monarch's migratory phenomenon lie in the retreat of the last ice age more than 10,000 years ago, when glacial melt 
also boosted sea level and formed Chesapeake Bay. Plants expanded their range north, including milkweed, the only vegetation on which monarch females lay their eggs. Over millennia, this theory goes, the butterflies followed. The sun is setting and I'm tired, but something draws me to paddle another quarter mile or so down the marsh edge. Perhaps, although I knew the monarchs were going to Mexico, I'm a little curious about where they would go that evening. They get lethargic once temperatures drop near 55 Fahrenheit, and clearly it was getting time for them to pack it in. From maybe 15 yards offshore, I see nothing but endless acres of Spartina grasses and one little clump of Iva frutescens, the marsh elder or high tide bush. One of the common shrubs of the Bay Edge, Iva is most unprepossessing. Its dull little leaves show no fall color and its fruits and flowers are barely discernible. They do have a faint minty odor when crushed. A twiggy shrub seldom exceeding a few feet in the marshes around here. Iva is somewhat useful for campfire kindling and for camouflaging duck blinds if nothing else is available. A friend who grew up in the marsh on Smith Island, 10 miles offshore in the Chesapeake, told me that out there they call Iva, quote, miracle bush. It is considered, he chuckled, a miracle anything at all grows out here. Out of ecological correctness, I take it on faith that Iva is necessary for something, but I have never been sure what that was. The flow of monarchs is slowed to a trickle, and the light is beginning to fade. Turning for home, I notice the little Iva bush on the shore seems to quiver, and its color's not quite right, more dun than lackluster green. On closer inspection, miracle of miracle bushes, the little clump turns out to be cloaked in monarchs, hundreds of them, wings folded back for the night to expose their duller underside. Layer upon layer, the weary migrants drape every twig-end branch of the little marsh shrub in living velvet. Even minor discovery is thrilling. I can only imagine the reaction of the explorers who finally came upon the great winter roosts of the monarch back in 1975. That first encounter, sun streaming into groves cloaked with tens of millions of the butterflies, was like walking into Chartres Cathedral and seeing light coming through stained glass windows, the eighth wonder of the world, one entomologist said. And the discoverers coined a term for these roost areas, ranging from a few dozen to a few thousand trees, relatively tiny areas with microclimates uniquely suited to the butterfly's survival. They called them magic circles. And here on the marsh, tossing in the north wind and the rich hues of late afternoon on the first day of fall, is a little Chesapeake version of a magic circle. Iva frutescens as way station for a few drops in this torrent of color and life that ripples across half the North American continent never served so well nor looked so good. I'm not done with my miracle bush. For in five decades of proging these marsh edges, I never saw the like, and I may not again. The next morning, I return with longtime friend and photographer David Harp. His camera is waiting for sunrise to illuminate our minor miracle bush. The monarchs are still there, hanging motionless in the calm and crystalline air. The red-winged blackbird's vibrato razzes the marsh. Terrapin heads peer up at us from the shallows, and a small striped bass jumps straight up. Out in the river, a crabber works his baited lines, radio thumping to a local rock station. Within five minutes, 
of the morning sun's first kiss, a few wings begin to unfold. More minutes, and the iva begins to wink, a deep, bright orange, then to flicker and quiver and blossom and flare as the first monarchs go airborne at 7.15 a.m. One rises a few feet, loops the iva once, then turns to follow the green edge, headed south by west, Maine to Mexico, coaxed and goaded by signals known only to itself, spreading beauty for all to see along its way, from miracle bush to magic circle. Absolutely amazing. Happens every year. Absolutely amazing. And, you know, I read that in in advance and I was like, well, you you got to read that one for the podcast because that's just so beautiful. And the, 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 the two things that really come to mind when I listen to that are, and I've heard other people say it, but, you know, from, um, from how I interface with nature, it's uh, on a really deep level. It's usually through hunting because I'm spending so much time. Yeah. But when you spend a huge amount of time in nature, you like, you get to see things that nobody else sees. And so like, how special is that? I mean, how many people have seen that? You know, and I'm yeah. starting to think, I'm starting to think that when you have a deep knowledge of nature, especially as humans are getting further and further away from it, it's almost like an, an, an occult um, knowledge because you, it's like, it's like, you understand things that very little other people get to understand. But you know, it shouldn't be like that. Of course. It, it shouldn't be occult knowledge. You're right, but it shouldn't be special to me. You know, I actually I actually wrote, let me just read it. Uh, in the preface to this first book of essays I did, I, I tried to get at that. I, I talked, hmm. let, me, let me just read this. Um, I, I talk about... Uh, well, let me just read you the last part yeah. because because th- this goes right to that. And I, I was talking about striped bass, and I say all, all of what I've just written is attached to just one fish. We bay dwellers move in a far richer and more extensive matrix of subtle relations and ancient connections with nature than we can yet explain or admit. We often sense it, the exhilaration brought by a crackling blue autumn sky over the limitless sweep of golden marsh and the inexplicable yearning created by migrating geese over our cities. In the vague, pleasurable homecoming we feel amid particular unchanged landscapes and in the quick, secret dismay we feel watching the legal rights of private property development overwhelm the rights of the forests and their wildlife. To preserve the full diversity of such connections into the next century will require a broader view of environmental protection than is likely to evolve through our legal and political systems alone. Carl Jung, the great psychoanalyst, once said he had never been able to cure a patient who did not have a firm belief that he or she was part of something larger. So we need our religions, our cosmologies, and equally, I think, a greatly expanded appreciation of all the ways in which we and nature fit together, resonate. To the extent we can comprehend it, rediscover the familiar in what has become unfamiliar. Uh, read that again. Rediscover the familiar in what has sadly become unfamiliar. Mm-hmm. To that extent, we may experience what Kenneth Graham in The Wind and the Willows called, quote, the most priceless possession of the human race, the wonder of the world. Mm. 
Wonder lies in the bay and its watershed in full measure. It is nothing alien or mystical or reserved for the expert. It is a different way of looking at things, a scarcely plumbed literature awaiting only skillful enough translation and properly attuned ears. And I, I think that goes to what you were saying. I mean, this this should be common knowledge. Mm -hmm. It should be widely appreciated. And uh, But there is a mystical element. I mean, well, what well, you is, witnessed is. Is, is quite mystical. There and is. I can't, I can't, I, I didn't read that part yet. I can't mm -hmm. believe you just read that because I am extremely into Carl Jung. I go to a dream analyst every week, a Jungian oh, analyst. Interesting. And we talk about all this kind of stuff. So it's huh. so cool that you just read a Jung quote. Yeah. So, uh, you know, my, my hope is that, uh, you know, people do become more attuned and it, it's why most of my college courses are very heavy on field trips. I, I just, I, I could talk for a year in the classroom and when I get them out in the right place and, uh, you know, a beaver pond or mm. a first light over a marsh, mm. I, I think that beats all the talking I could do for the rest of the day. Or, or if they talk to someone authentic, like a person that's made his living hmm. hunting crabs for 50 years. Hmm. They just, I could tell them more about crabs than that guy knows, except I couldn't. You know, he's the real deal. Mm -hmm. he, he does it. His living depends on it. So I I think, uh, I now, know what the answer is. You know, field experience, you can't reach nearly as many kids as you can with a Zoom session. Mm. But yet. It's so much better. The effect, yeah. The I, effect. I don't know. There's no way to resolve that, really. Now back to your monarch story. Yeah. Um. So when one of my the best podcast episodes I've done is with this woman Lynn Faust. She is a um, citizen scientist and just on her own through her own passion um, has she wrote she has written the only North American guidebook on lightning bugs and huh. she. Um, has found out all this stuff about lightning bugs that was unknown to, you know, the, the more academic science level. So do you, do you, did you witness something regarding that, that plant, that swamp elder or, what, or whatever you called it? Like, had anyone known this? Like, did you witness something that you've never found in a book or any, you know, was this? I, I had never read such an account. I mean, mm. obviously, these monarchs migrating, they have to roost somewhere at night. Right. So they will go to whatever bush. It was just chance that they went to this. Uh, I mean, out on that marsh edge, Iva Frutessens, marsh elder, is, is, it, it's damn near the only thing taller than a foot that can grow because okay. of salt and the harsh conditions. Okay. And it really... I'd always just thought it was. I used to. I used to cut it sometimes to to uh, camouflage duck blinds back mm -hmm. in my hunting youth, and uh, it was just kind of a useless bush. I know ecologically, of course, nothing's useless, but but here it was uh, serving as as a, a real important thing. You know, the the, the beauty of migration, uh, monarchs and other things, is one, it's intensely local. You can go out and see it every fall. Mm. But it also carries these obligations and responsibilities and connections to the wider world. We, If we enjoy monarchs coming through the Chesapeake, we need to be attuned to what Mexico is mm. doing to preserve those forests. We need to protect our wild edges. Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, 
I have a friend who wing tags monarchs down at Shinkatig. So neat. We made a little film on her. Denise, can't remember her last name. She's actually over 20 or 30 years gotten a few returns from Mexico. Her wow. wing tags are found in Mexico. But she's at Chincoteague Island, which is a national wildlife refuge. The monarchs that she sees coming in there have spent the last several days from Cape May, New Jersey, down the highly developed beaches of Rehoboth and Bethany and Ocean City, Maryland, where there's almost no food left, just condos. And they are coming into Chincoteague just starved. Mm. They, are, they are lean and they spend days uh, nectaring on seaside goldenrod in the mm. refuge. So you see the importance of keeping some of that edge open and wild. Uh, if it were all condos, you would wipe out that part of the monarch God migration. God Almighty! Yeah. So, uh, so you have these. Uh, I mean, migration is really important. It's like the horseshoe crabs; their eggs are uh, vital to shorebirds that move from Argentina to the subarctic. Uh, it it uh, it carries responsibilities. It carries delights. You know, I mean, if a canvasback duck plops down on the bay, you know that there must be some good pothole nesting habitat left out in the midwestern prairies. Mm. If not, you wouldn't get canvasbacks. Uh, so so I I like the connecting. It, it's not just a beauty thing and an appreciation thing. Connecting the bay to all these these wider webs it's mm. it's it's an yeah. obligation thing yeah the interconnectivity of everything yeah yeah, yeah and, and that's uh, fascinating so hopefully places up you know like the jersey shore will be um incentivized to plant more of these yeah yeah you really you really gotta look look big look at the whole picture the whole migratory path and uh i think those tundra swans we aren't going to talk much about them but they, the fact that a, a bird that weighs 20-some pounds, they're one of the biggest flighted waterfowl in mm. the world, uh, the fact that they are coming to the Chesapeake 4,500 miles from the Bering Sea and the North Slope, mm. you'd think they could find a better place in between here and there, but apparently not. That's a 9,000-mile round trip they make every year. Uh I mean, it's these astonishing. Are, these are birds big as a turkey, you know, that uh, that are flying that far. The last leg, Philippe, they will often stage up on the North Dakota-Canada border. Mm. And once they lift off, they don't set down for 24 to 30 hours until mm. they reach the Chesapeake. That's a long damn flight for a big bird. Uh, they, yeah. I mean, and they're they're glad to get here. You, mm. you can tell when they come down after after flying from... South Dakota, North Dakota. So they Dakota. spend their winters here? Winters here usually come in in November, leave in March, work their way back up, and they, they, they're basically, you know, migratory species are basically chasing energy. You know, they're going to that Arctic tundra, which is barren most of the year, but for about two months in the summer, July, August, it is rich when the light is longer mm. up there and it blooms. And they've got enough space and fuel up there to mate and raise their young. And you think about these young swans that are coming down. I mean, you're seeing birds that were an egg on the tundra in August. And by November, they've flown 4,500 miles to the Chesapeake. Incredible. But that that's just boggles your mind. 
God, it's incredible. And they're so funny because, you know, swans have the most beautiful calls. I mean, you can do a lot with a three-foot windpipe. And uh, these young ones can just like, yeep, they can't, they can't make real swan huh. sounds. So you'll hear these beautiful yodeling swan sounds. And then the little ones or the younger ones, hmm. which are the same size by then, they're coming along, yeep, yeep. You know, hmm. it's kind of cool. I don't think I've seen them down here. I, I know, um, uh, so I did a little trip in, it was in Switzerland. Was it in Switzerland? Yes, it was Switzerland. There was this castle that was on this lake and I, it was the night before leaving to come back to go get our flight back home. And so I decided I was going to sleep. It was a castle that had been visited by Lord Byron. He wrote wow. about it. And wow. so I decided I was going to sleep on the side of the castle. So I just snuck down there and I slept on the side of the castle. And uh, there's thunderstorms and lightning going on in the background. And I woke up in the middle of the night and this huge swan had come out of the lake and was staring at me. Oh, yeah. I thought that was kind of weird. Well, you know, the uh, you mentioned how that woman found out so many unknown things about lightning yes. bugs. Yes. Uh, it's interesting. And so, that, so, yeah. so I'll just say, so basically what we talked about a little bit on that podcast was there's so much room for just highly passionate people, citizen scientists, to discover things that are unknown by, you know. Well, see, what I've found is the species we know a lot about are often those like salmon with huge commercial importance. Mm. Uh, the things that don't have much commercial importance, there's not a lot of money for research. Mm. Uh, I'll give you an example, the swans. You know how we found out all about swan migration? Back in the 60s over Ellicott City, Maryland in mm -hmm. uh, central Maryland, a, a plane with 60-some people on board hit a flight of migrating mm. swans and went down with everybody on board was killed. Mm. All of a sudden, there was tons of money from the FAA to find out everything you can about swans. And a friend of mine glommed onto that, and they figured out the whole migratory pattern of swans. My but God. before that, there was no interest, no no money interest. My God. So uh, things, it's, it's interesting to see how that works. And yeah, sometimes you think, surely we've researched all of nature, but no, we've mainly researched the nature that makes a lot of money for somebody or is of great interest for for, for whatever reason, and uh, lightning bugs didn't didn't qualify, I guess. Okay, but. well, I think this is a great point. This is a great uh, moment to do your second reading because we were talking about the little known, the mystery, and I read, so yesterday I went to the Chesapeake Maritime Museum. The, the library and the gift shop has a ton of your books, and I bought one of them, and I was doing a little reading last night, and I there was one story that I found that I really liked. I mean, there's they're all wonderful, but I really liked one because of the, the element of mystery and how little we know. So this is a this is a, a piece that had always this critter had always fascinated me because I didn't know much about them. And uh, I included it in the first book of essays I wrote on the Chesapeake back in the 80s. And uh, just going to read, I, I called it the Passion of Eels. Around the Chesapeake Bay, 
our attention to autumn's migrations tends to be monopolized by wild geese returning. We scarcely notice the concurrent exodus of another creature from every rivulet in the estuary's 41 million acre drainage basin, a journey that is still tinged with mystery more than 23 centuries after humanity began to wonder at it. It begins, as it probably has begun for 70 million years, on October and November nights, always in the dark quarter of the moon, usually in the wake of a storm. Throughout the bay and throughout half the globe, the eel's hour has come. Only a few Marylanders anymore are attentive to the great departure for the spawning grounds. A handful of the Chesapeake Bay's commercial watermen harvest the ocean-bound hordes of eels, chasing them down the bay until miles off the Virginia Capes, the migration drops over the lip of the continental shelf, a point beyond which no one has ever seen a spawning eel. Even before the watermen on the bay, Tony Robucci has seen the migration coming. Robucci's from Hagerstown in western Maryland. He's superintendent of minor power stations for the Potomac Edison Power Company. Each fall, the eels moving down from Appalachian and Piedmont Creeks, high in the drainage of the Shenandoah and Potomac Rivers, must be cleaned from the turbines in the utility's old but cost-efficient hydropower dams in western Maryland. I have seen them four foot long and they can clog the water intakes some years, Rabucci says. An eel that big may have spent nearly 20 years maturing, much of it in a stream no wider than you can jump across. Camouflaged by their grayish and muddy yellow coloration and nocturnal in their activities, eels are such unobtrusive residents that people are surprised to find how abundant they are. With the possible exception of man, no species ever has colonized the bay's watershed more ubiquitously. A five-year study of 16 streams across Maryland found eels the most abundant species in all cases, up to 1,500 per acre of water. In the bay proper, eels by the early 1980s had become the second biggest commercial fin fishery in Maryland at about one million and a half pounds behind Menhaden and ahead of striped bass. The record eel ever caught here on the Chesapeake was 42.2 inches long and weighed five pounds, 10 ounces. No one knows what compels the eel's fall migration. Not all of them go in a given year, nor does their departure come at any particular age or size. But those chosen have begun undergoing dramatic changes for months to ready for the long and presumably final journey. Their digestive tracts have shrunk and to facilitate navigation through the darkness and the intense pressures of ocean channels 100 times deeper than the bays, their eyes have grown to twice normal size and their swim bladders have toughened. The shape of their skulls has altered and their coating of slime has thickened, armoring them against dehydration from the extreme salinities they will soon encounter. And such fine looking armor, Gone are the drab colors matching the eel to its stream bottom home. Now it shimmers olive and bronze and metallic silver that glints pink and almost purple in certain lights. The late Gilbert Klingel was the only person I have known to describe such an eel in its full glory. He wrote in the Bay, a book he published in 1954, of a dive he took one night beneath the Bay's surface, quote, 
in the depths of the Chesapeake, in its own environment, this great eel was a thing of exceeding grace, but its real beauty was in the hitherto unsuspected iridescence of its soft silken skin, of a soft, lustrous glow, leaf green above and pearl pink below. This pink altered in tone as the eel moved its coils. One moment it flashed pale lavender fire, next delicate and evanescent yellows, end quote. Alas, when taken from the water, the eel's glory fades as quickly as that of tropical fish. What triggers the great change is as much a mystery as what guides the eel, which all its life in the bay never ranges more than a few miles, so that it can rendezvous unerringly across half an ocean with every other migrating eel in North America and Europe. Eels do not appear to rely on odors, orientation to the sun and stars, salinity and temperature difference, or any other of the underwater guideposts that are thought to guide salmon, herring, and other spawners from oceans to streams of their birth. The eel, whose migration goes in reverse of most spawners, is the bay's only catadromous spawner of any note. It may well be using subtle electrical fields created by water currents to navigate from its home streams to the continental edges, scientists think. But that is still a long way from where the eel must go. And despite the considerable amount of fishing that has gone on for centuries in the Atlantic Ocean, no one has ever caught a migrating adult eel once it leaves the continental shelf. A few eels were found in the belly of a sperm whale harpooned off the Azores years ago, and a television camera lowered into the Straits of Florida once showed a silvery female snaking along the bottom nearly a half mile below the surface, but that is all. Apparently, their eggs and sperm do not develop until the eels are well at sea. Thus, outside of laboratory experiments, it is still true what Aristotle, the first person to establish that eels moved downstream to the sea, wrote 23 centuries ago, quote, nor was an eel ever found with either milt or spawn, sperm or eggs. Wouldn't that be a gift for the person with everything, for the most jaded gourmet, caviar produced from eel row, a dish no king has ever tasted? This uncertainty about eels spawning led to some wild versions of how they reproduced, including spontaneous generation from slime or from horsehairs thrown into water. Oppian of Cilicia in AD 2 gave poetic expression to what until recent times remained the most widely held theory, that the eel mated with snakes, and I quote, the eel glowing with uncommon fires, the earth-bred serpents, purfled curls admires. He, no less kind, makes amorous returns. With equal love, the grateful serpent burns. His mate he calls with softly hissing sounds. She joyfully hears and from the ocean bounds. Good poem, but not true. Seamier details of this slimy affair abound in Oppian's Eluticon. By 1684, a Tuscan nobleman, Francisco Reddy, had confirmed that adult eels spawned in the sea, but no one had a clue as to where until just before the Civil War, when German scientists first identified as European eel larvae some transparent organisms the shape and size of willow leaves found floating in the Strait of Messina. Nearly half a century more passed before the detective hunt for the birthplace of the eel began in earnest. 
A young Danish biologist and oceanographer, Johannes Schmidt, was charged by his government to crisscross the Atlantic, dragging a fine mesh net behind his ship, the Thor, until he found where the little willow leaves originated. For years, the search spread to the North Sea, the English Channel, the Faroe Islands, the Azores, across to Newfoundland, and down to the Antilles. 23 Danish ships were involved by now. Ever smaller leptocephali, as the little willow-shaped, willow-leaf-shaped larval eels were called, kept turning up as Schmidt closed in on the location finally announced in 1920. It turned out to be a place of super saline stagnant water where an estimated 10 million pounds of seaweed in great clumps drifted timelessly in an area nearly the size of the continental United States. It might very well be, wrote Rachel Carson, that some of the very weeds you would see if you visited this place today were seen by Columbus and his men. The place she spoke of, the birthplace and universal spawning ground of all the eels of two continents, was in the depths of the Sargasso Sea. The helpless, free-floating larvae, the little willow leaves scientists would later show, are seized by great, slow, clockwise currents that many months, even years later, deliver the American and European eels near their respective seacoasts. Their spawning areas are in slightly different parts of the Sargasso. By the time they reach the coastal fringes, the eels have reached the elver stage, a few inches long, looking quite eel-like, and are able to swim on their own. And how? Up and up they go, up the bay, up the rivers, up the creeks, up the sheer walls of concrete dams, up sewer pipes, even overland to ponds and wells more than a mile from flowing water. What urge impels them so toward fresh water, to bodies of water they could not possibly have prior knowledge of, is just not understood, save that it is one of the more powerful motive forces on the planet. They surmount Great Falls on the Potomac in Washington, D.C., a barrier that historically has stopped even the great leaping spawners like the shad. Richard St. Pierre, a fisheries biologist with the federal government on the Susquehanna River, says he routinely gets reports of eels crushed as they try to slither across U.S. Route 1, where it traverses the top of the Conowingo Dam. Built in the 1920s, Conowingo is more than 100 feet high. Because the eel breathes quite nicely through its skin, as long as it is moist, it can travel overland some distance if there is so much as a heavy dew on the ground. Sometimes, if it cannot climb a dam, it just goes around it. Eels returning from the Sargasso appear to have crossed even the eastern continental divide, which runs through the far western third of Maryland. Traveling perhaps through inland waterways of the Potomac system, eels have somehow gotten into the Yakagani, the only river in Maryland that flows to the Gulf of Mexico rather than the Chesapeake. Charles Hassel, Jr., a 35-year plumbing veteran of New York City, tells of the time the water supply was cut off for an entire building at 3rd Avenue and 63rd Street. Blocking the main pipe was a healthy, thrashing two-foot eel. It is mostly female eels that seem to have the urge to push as far upstream as water permits, say John Foster and Robert Brody, the state biologists, who have made a study of Maryland's eel population. Males, which never grow more than about 18 inches long, stay in brackish water 
down in the bay and in the creeks along the ocean coast. Chincoteague National Wildlife Refuge takes advantage of the seaside elver run. Elvers are little eels. Seaside elver run each spring by opening floodgates that connect freshwater ponds with the ocean. The millions of elvers thus trapped in the ponds provide food for migrating wading birds and indirectly hardy fare for the tens of thousands of bird watchers who flock to Chincoteague each spring. As you might expect of eels, they don't follow all the rules. I know of one big old female that, for whatever reasons, never pushed farther upstream than Smith Island, where she has lived for years under the crab shanty of a man in Rhodes Point who feeds her royally on dead soft crabs. Foster and Brody know as much as most scientists about the habits of eels. But even they, in talking about where eels go to spawn and die, at depths far below our scrutiny, must always hedge. To recall Aristotle's writings, quote, nor was an eel ever found with either milt or spawn. Scientists have, however, calculated how much energy in the body of an adult eel it would take to get to the spawning grounds in the Sargasso. It looks from that like they have a one-way ticket. It is easy to imagine their arrival on the spawning grounds based on such one-way trips documented in some salmon species. Flesh literally rotting, bones demineralized and spongy, all systems irreversibly shutting down, remaining energies all channeled into the organs of reproduction, a sad, ruined version of Klingel's glorious encounter beneath the Chesapeake. But what a way to end it all. Imagine... Billions of eels, each female bearing millions of eggs, silvery projectiles all converging on the dark, warm, sargassum womb, also tomb, literally disintegrating in a blast of superfecundation that covers thousands of square miles, only then sinking slowly into the cold abyss, even as a galaxy of tiny willow leaves starts drifting gently back toward Chesapeake Bay. Astonishing! That uh, I love that. Yeah, it's a. I, I I like to think about that in it. You know, National Geographic has tried to lower cameras down there, but it, it it's like twenty thousand feet or something. Wow! It, it's it's friggin' deep and dark and just. So they're di- they just disintegrate in there as the new ones are born. Pretty much, you know, when you look at the calories, it's it's like a lot of these salmon. By the yeah. time they get, you know, they got the energy to get there. Mm. The rest is reproduction. Yeah, it's it's a. It's a one-way ticket. And that metamorphosis that you write about is just like, it is Yeah, they nature. call them silver eels. Uh, hmm. And some never go. A friend of mine, Dave Secor, actually uh, found an eel that was 42 years old. He aged it. They can look wow. at their ear bone. 42, 42 years it spent beneath the George Washington Bridge in wow. New York. Never left to the Sargasso. Why? You know, I told Dave, I said... Yeah, I, yeah, you, so yeah, you said that... Like I, some, said, I said, I bet that eel was about half cadmium if it spent 42 years feeding <laughs> on the bottom of New York Harbor. Because, man, there's a lot of cadmium up there from somebody's plant. But, uh, yeah, I mean, so some don't go. Some go when they're yay long. Some go... Who, who knows um, what trigger it triggers it in what eels and... Uh, unreal. Yeah, it is, it is a... So mysterious. 
Rachel Carson it. actually wrote a long piece in Under the Sea Wind based on the Chesapeake. I think I know the stream she was writing about. I've taken students there hmm. where, uh, and it, it's, there was less known uh, about the Sargasso when she wrote that. Of course, she did a right fine job as she did with all her stuff writing about it, but she was, she was intrigued by that too. And it's, uh, but what I like <clears throat> is it's every friggin' creek hmm. on the bay Unreal. and in North America. I mean, <laughs> there was, there's a place up in Baltimore called Dead Run that drains into the Baltimore Harbor. Dead run for good reason. They recently had a toxic chemical spill up mm. there. Place was covered with dead eels that had been living in dead run. Oh, wow. Yeah, I just found out about that Jeez. a few weeks ago. So eels just, I would say the critters that penetrate everywhere in the watershed would be eels, humans, great blue herons, maybe beavers. Mm. I didn't know that when I wrote this. Mm. Um, so I told you last night and whatnot, I absolutely love folklore. Mm. I love, like when I, um, learn about medicinal plants and whatnot, I absolutely love learning about like the historical traditional uses. So hearing these bizarre old theories, like the horse hair, yeah. I mean, I love stuff like that. I know. Well, That's there's a, so the neat. people, people have been fascinated by eels because where do they come from? Where do they go? You know, they, they've known They're, eels were moving. The Danes, of course, had a huge economic interest in hmm. eels. That's why they, they they basically wanted to find out more about them because they that, that was a big deal. Yeah, uh, and I've seen some stuff. I believe in maybe Delaware, maybe where, where they do they'll put the weirs in the in the rivers and creeks yeah. to catch them as they're moving through. Well, you know, lately we have had a real problem with poaching when these elvers, little two three inch eels, come back. Uh, people will catch them and ship them live to Europe where they have polluted a lot of their eels out of existence. Mm. And they buy them. They can sell for as much as 30,000 bucks a pound, oh which my. would be lots of little three-inch eels. And there's serious poaching of little eels and sales to Europe. Now, wow. I just turned, What are they doing there? Eating them or is it for something oh, else? Oh, they like to eat eels. Yeah, mm. there, there's really no American market for eels. Mm. There's a little market. They're good mm. bait for striped bass, mm. but that's a minor market. Yeah, uh, shipping eels live to Europe. However, just last month, I was talking to an eel potter, and I said, it doesn't look like you're working this fall. He says, no, the market's tanked for eels. And I said, what's happened to it? He said, the Europeans have finally figured out how to farm eels. Mm. For years, they would buy adult eels live from the U.S. and try to breed them mm. and try to farm them, and they couldn't do it. Now they found the secret. You get the little three-inch eels. At mm. that stage of life, they can adapt to new waters, new habitats. Fascinating. And uh, that seems to, that may have permanently tanked the market for eels around here because they were always one of Chesapeake Bay's highest value seafoods. I would love to try to, to fish for those. It's just so neat. And you do it with a little, with like a little pot similar for the crab. It's crabbing. similar to a, it, it, all these pots work the same. They have a funnel that goes in and narrows down and bait in the center. Mm. So an eel pot is a cylinder. Ah. And uh, it, it has a funnel in the top. The eels go in to try to get the bait in the bait pocket and they can't get back out. Mm. Little ones can, but the big ones can't. 
So it's they used to be woven of oak and willow. Fascinating. Uh, and there's a woman over in Dorchester still weaves eel pots, and they're beautiful. Whoa. She sells them not that much, 150 bucks for one. They're, they're gorgeous. Yeah, I've Rhonda, seen some pictures Rhonda of them. Aaron, yeah, she makes a beautiful one. Wow. But most of them are wire mesh and, and nylon bait pockets now. But, uh, yeah, this guy said the eel market is just tanked. The Europeans have finally figured out. Now, I don't think they can get eels to breed. I think what they do is they raise them to a size where they migrate and spawn mm. and, and, and come back. Yeah, or not come back, but the young come back. So, uh, Or they just buy the little ones and raise them to market size. Mm. But, yeah, I did some bicycling with Dutch friends through Europe. And, uh, man, we got in this habit about... 10 o'clock every morning, these fish houses would open. They had gotten eels caught the night before, and they smoked them. And I'm telling you, fresh smoked eel is, I, I could friggin' eat that for breakfast every morning the rest of my life. So could my Dutch God. friends. I mean, we rode like 30 miles out of the way to get smoked eel one day, <laughs> and it was worth it. Yeah, there is some, somebody, I've seen a little documentary about a guy here. It may be in Delaware, maybe in Pennsylvania, I'm not sure. But there's a guy that does that. He catches them in the rivers with weirs, and then yep. he smokes them, and then people come yeah, from all over the place. I've tried to get up with that guy. He's Yeah, he's, he's a famous guy, right? Yeah, but he's, he's a weird, pretty, like, backwoods he's, dude. He doesn't, I think you'd have to go find him. I don't think yes. he does email. Yeah, I've, I've a friend yes, of mine has, works, yeah. Yeah, yeah, from the little documentary, like, trucks go to him. He doesn't go. He doesn't go deliver anywhere. Everybody yeah, has to go yeah. to him. And I think you have to go see him. You know, mm -hmm. I, I would love to do that sometime. But yeah, I uh, I should try smoking eel. I mean, it's not hard to go catch an eel on hook and line. Really? Like, oh yeah. A lot of times when you're fishing for something else, use a small hook, bait, uh, fish around the marsh edges. Yeah, you can get some nice you know eels. I would love to try that. And you just my dad used to cook them all the time. He'd just uh, he'd slit their throat. And then he'd nail the head to a board, and you cut right around behind their ears and take a pair of pliers, whoop, you can strip the skin mm. right off and then just chop them up into it's like chunks. like a snake. Yeah, like snake. Mm. And uh, they're a little bony, uh, but the meat comes off the bones. And they have a taste fresh or fried. You know, I would put them somewhere in the middle of tasty fish, not up there with striped bass or flounder or mahi-mahi fine enough but i wouldn't go out of my way but smoked damn they're good mm, yummy uh so uh yeah i should actually get us i've been meaning to get a smoker I've yeah never i done want that, to as but well. it's pretty simple to do yeah but um, yeah eels you it wouldn't be hard to go catch eels you could probably catch them right down here in in the wicomico i'm gonna try that yeah Okay, well, we've been talking a while, so I feel like we can start wrapping it up. Yeah. I do think I got, not, before I let <clears> you go, I feel like, because um, you've mentioned a handful of times, it'd be cool to talk for a few minutes just about growing up. Because you said, yeah. you, you know, you grew up on the Eastern Shore. You're, I, I believe I read that your family were raising chickens. Like, if you want to yeah. just talk about your, the rural setting of growing up for a few minutes, I think that'd be really cool. Yeah, uh you know my my growing up here on the eastern shore i was i was born here my parents were originally from the midwest but 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 i i spent my whole life here until i went away to college in baltimore and uh i have uh, i think i wrote this once i wish 
for my mother's sake that we had known my misspent youth because I would often cut school to go fishing, to play in the marshes, to, to hunt. Uh, uh, in retrospect, since I would become the first environmental reporter for the Baltimore Sun as an adult, uh, I can now say that all that misspent youth was on the job training for my career. <laughs> it would have made my mother's life a lot easier if we had known that then. <laughs> we, we actually, she lived a long life and we, she lived to joke about it, but uh, it really was. And I, I kind of spent the first quarter, third of my life just enjoying the bay. Uh, and you grew up in a cabin? Uh, my dad had a hunting cabin. My mm. dad was in the chicken business. They owned a chunk of marsh with a hunting cabin on it, which I spent all my waking hours at when I could. And uh, you for waterfowl or what? Oh, I I hunted waterfowl. I hunted dove, quail, squirrels, rabbits, uh, geese, ducks. You 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 name it. Uh, not so much big game, mm -hmm. but. Uh, yeah, I like to hunt, and we ate wild game. I mean, we would often have for Thanksgiving dinner wild goose and duck mm. as opposed to turkey, uh, you know. Uh, so I, I grew up spending that time enjoying the bay, and the bay was relatively healthy then in the 50s and 60s. Uh, and uh, then I would spend the next 50 years kind of coming back and looking at the bay through a very different lens, that of an environmental writer talking mm. to scientists increasingly seeing the impacts of overfishing, too much hunting, uh, too much pollution. Uh, so I had that context of my joyful boyhood, uh, youth, uh, and then the more scientific ecological lens that I would bring to bear later. You know, the, the other thing that strikes me is I could easily paint a picture of the eastern shore in the Chesapeake in my youth as paradise that mm. now has gone to hell, but it's much more complicated than that. And I'll give you an example. Uh, the Marshy Hope Creek, which was the river that flowed through my hometown, Federalsburg, when I was a kid, uh, raw sewage went into it. Mm. You could, after a storm, as easily hook a condom as a fish, you know, if you were mm. out there. No sewage treatment. My dad's chicken plant flushed the feathers and the guts and the heads and the feet in there. After a day of processing, the tomato canneries flushed all the peels in there. It was quite colorful. Uh, so a lot of visible pollution, all of which is gone. The river is much less trashy than it was when I was a kid. And yet, that river had great runs of shad and herring and striped bass, uh, lots of flights of waterfowl, all of which are much diminished now. So the river actually looks better than it did 60 years ago. But does it have more life in it? No. Or in some cases, the life has changed. We've got lots of invasive blue catfish now. They're here to stay. So the, the picture of Paradise Lost is a, is a simplistic one, I guess, is what I'm saying. Well, I would love to end this way. So, the way, so you're already talking about it, but if yeah. you could go a little bit more, just so where is the Chesapeake now? Like, I know I've even read in your book, you can't just say the health is, is better. It's worse. It's very complicated. Yeah, but so, the, you know, I, I guess I thought. Is it better right now than the past few decades? Like, are we doing, is, are, is there hope? Like, where yeah, are we the, going? The Chesapeake Bay, 
we began a serious cleanup in 1983. Began with the recognition that it had problems. The problems weren't going to go away with business as usual. It wasn't a matter of just obeying the laws we had. We were going to have to do more. Uh, So there's been a baywide six states, federal government, District of Columbia, all involved, baywide, big-time, multi-billion-dollar restoration effort uh, focused on everything from crabs to sewage treatment to agriculture since the 1980s. Uh, It has been modestly successful Hmm. and emphasis on modestly. Uh, Tons of effort, lots of good legislation, uh, lots of money spent, lots of good research, much better understanding of the Bay, very modest success. Mm. You know, would have been worse if we hadn't done it. But I don't know of anyone who finds the progress we've made at all satisfying, mm. unless you say would have been a hell of a lot worse if we hadn't done it. Mm. Why has that not been better? Well, we've doubled population. No Mm. one wants to talk about population. That's almost a taboo subject. It was easier to talk about population 50 years ago. Mm. Now you get caught up in issues like immigration, uh, Mm. racism. It's it's gotten more complex, and that's a whole other podcast. Mm. But uh, uh, so population has offset a lot of our efforts. Uh, Agriculture has actually diminished in acreage because of development, Mm. but it has vastly intensified far more chemicals and fertilizers per acre. Mm. So this intensification of agriculture has uh, really offset a lot of our pollution gains in other areas. So, uh, and now the big new wrinkle, climate change. Mm. Climate change even if we do everything we should have been doing 20 years ago, Chesapeake Bay-wide and worldwide, there's a lot of climate change impact that's already baked in. I mean, we're going to see sea level rise. We're going to see a warmer bay. Mm. We're going to see some species go out of existence, Mm. some new species favored. Uh, that is shifting the the baseline. So so we're now starting to debate what is a restored Chesapeake going to look like. And increasingly, and I don't really like this, but I kind of accept it. Increasingly, we're having to realize a restored, recovered, saved bay is not going to look like the bay of my boyhood. Mm. Uh which is what I'd like it to look like, mm-hmm. uh, mostly, except for the chicken guts and the raw sewage. So, so what is it going to look like? You know, this is this is we're just beginning to debate. Uh, population continues to mm-hmm. increase. Uh, I thought when I I made a decision back in the '70s at the Baltimore Sun not to pursue the standard path of covering politics, maybe becoming an editor, maybe becoming an editorial writer. I decided to stick with environment. Uh, A lot of people said that's not going to result in a very good career for you, but it did for me. 
uh, wasn't a traditional trajectory. And I thought, foolishly, back then, by the time I was my present age, 76, I would have most of the answers on mm. the Chesapeake and environment, but not so. <laughs> Too much keeps changing. Population, mm. climate change. I don't have any more answers now than I did mm. when I started, although I know some truths. You mm. know, I, I think there's hope in things like beavers, in emulating nature's old ways. There, there's here, Here's what I talk to my classes about. I tell them two things. If they're going to get into any of these save-the-world professions, hmm. saving the bay, ridding the world of landmines, uh, helping Haiti get on its feet, you know, any, any of these hopeless you against the world, they'd better learn to build fun and enjoyment into it or they're hmm. going to burn out because hmm. the world's a big place. Many days, it's not only going to, you're not only not going to save the world, the world's not even going to thank you for trying. They may hate you for trying. So, I think that's some good wisdom right uh, look, there. Look, everybody for 30 years, my friend Don and I, Don worked with environmental education with the Chesapeake Bay Foundation. We've run these kayak trips to really cool spots on the bay. Everyone says, Tom and Don, thank you for these wonderful kayak trips. We're not doing it for them. We're doing it for us to keep our sanity. Mm. I mean, we deal too much with all that's wrong. So we need to spend time in places mm. where things, we can still go out and pick up an oyster for lunch mm. and catch a rockfish and eat it on a nice unspoiled marsh edge. Watch the monarchs. So, uh, well, so I, I tell them you got to prevent burnout. The, the other thing... I think it, there's, it might be Joseph Campbell, who is a huge um, student of Jung, but I think mm. it's Joseph Campbell who has said, you know, you got to save yourself before you, you save do. the world. You do. You do. And you, on a psychological level, on many levels, yeah. you know. No, I've seen people burn out. You, you have to have some fun. You do have to save yourself. Uh, the other thing, I make a real distinction between optimism and hope. I get asked about 100 times a year, are you mm. optimistic or pessimistic mm. about the bay? Well, look at the roots. Those are, those are words derived from the Greek. Optimism literally means to be feeling good about something. How mm. can I be feeling good about mm. the progress we've made mm. in the state of Chesapeake Bay? I can't. I am not optimistic. Mm. That's not to say hopeless. Mm. Hope is not from the Greek. Hope is from Old English. It mm. actually comes from the same root as hop. And there's a guy, uh, I think it's Scott Russell Sanders, who wrote a book about hunting for hope, how to be an environmentalist and have hope. And he talked about the origins of the word. He said he's got a short dog, little dog that sometimes gets into tall grass and it gets lost, mm. but it's learned to hop up and it can see over the grass. It can see the way out. And that's hope. Hope is not optimism. Uh, hope hey, is he seeing a possibility for better things. Do you hear the dogs in the background? Yeah. They're agreeing with you. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So hope, I, I have plenty of hope. I can see hope in things like beavers. I can see hope in things like nature bats last. Population, I fully think, will decline at some point on this planet. I think it's going to increase for a while. I hope it doesn't decline from some great plague or something. I hope it declines. Uh, if if we went to an average fertility rate of one child per person, you could be at 2 billion people on Earth in a century. Well, there's uh, already lots of stuff I listen to 
that these things are kind of happening kind of organically. They're, they're, plastics. they're kind of happening. People well, are getting last... poisoned from plastics and their and and yeah. their sperm counts are going down, all sorts of stuff like that. Weird so stuff I, like that. I have I have hope uh in the long run, maybe not in my lifetime, enough to keep me going, but uh, that's different from optimism. So you know, while I certainly don't have many more answers than I did because of shifting baselines, uh I I uh you do learn some truths, and some are you. You need to enjoy what you've got. You, uh, nature can. Uh, I am constantly impressed by the rapidity with which nature can come back. Mm. It, it makes my students laugh, but sometimes I take them out to an abandoned parking lot and say, "This is hope, kids. Mm. Look, it's been three years since people stopped parking cars here, and look at the." grass coming through the cracks and vines growing. It happens fast. Mm. Pretty soon a beaver's going to set up over in that corner <laughs> if it can find a little water. So, you yeah, know, it, it, living they get a there. chuckle out of it, but uh, nature nature bats last and nature is powerfully resilient. And I, I'm wary of saying things like that because people go from there to saying it doesn't matter what humans do. Mm. It'll all work out in mm. the end. And I don't want to get into that. It does matter what humans do. But, so, can uh, you give us a quick rundown of 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 critters, animals that are doing really well right now, and animals that are doing really bad here on the bay? Well, here's here's one way. Let me talk about a few species that have been of great ecological and commercial importance to mm -hmm. the Chesapeake of the last several hundred years, mm -hmm. maybe the Chesapeake of the Native Americans. Uh, there are two critters, striped bass or rockfish as we call them, and blue crabs, mm. that are doing pretty well because we have done the science, we have let the science guide our regulations, mm. and we have put harvests of those two species, maybe not on a perfectly sustainable basis, but pretty close. Now, so I so, read last night in your book, and I guess this one was made in the 80s, that the rockfish were not doing well. So you're saying they That would rebounded. be an update to my book. Since, since I wrote Bay Country in the 80s, the rockfish crashed. We put a moratorium on them. We did a lot of good science. We have coastwide now for striped bass, a pretty good regulatory network, and we're harvesting them sustainably. Now, awesome. we also have polluted mm. enough of the water that they aren't doing as well as they could be. Mm. Uh, mm. We could, if we clean up the bay, probably mm. catch a lot more striped bass, but, but we're managing them. Mm. We're doing that with blue crabs. There's a couple other species where we did not do the science, we did not let it guide us, and they have gone down and never come back. And mm. that is shad, which mm. are probably at less than 1% of their historical abundance. They were a fish that thronged the Bay's rivers, good to, good to eat, mm. fun to catch, commercially important. Uh, we didn't react fast enough. We didn't do the science. We What science we had, we didn't let it guide us. Uh, and oysters is the other. They're mm. at a percent or so of their historic abundance. Really? We are just beginning to do the science for oysters, still not following it as well as we should. So where you, and, and this is some of what gives me hope, where we do the science mm. and then follow the science and fund things, and following the science often means 
regulatory oversight. It doesn't mean just following it. It means uh, translating it into to regulations and, hmm. and laws. So uh, where we have done that for crabs and striped bass, we've got pretty good fisheries, pretty good public enjoyment, the fish. Uh, and uh, where we haven't, oysters and shad, we don't have much left for hmm. people to enjoy or the economy. Uh, we're also just beginning to we, – we've developed this concept of ecosystem services over the last 20 years. Trees are not just for lumber. They sequester carbon. Hmm. They sequester pollutants. They promote biodiversity. Oysters filter the water, cleanse the water. Wetlands are not just pretty places in a sunset or a sunrise. They foster biodiversity. They get rid of pollution. So we've got that concept, but putting it into action. For example, one of the more abundant fish in the Chesapeake is the menhaden. Mm. It's an oily little sucker, not much good to eat, but everything in the bay eats it. We also catch it by the millions of pounds for fish oil and uh, omega-3 proteins. We're in a huge debate now. How many menhaden can humans take? How many must we leave for the ecosystem mm. services it provides the bay? So going from ecosystem services to translating that into action, how many wetlands must we leave for the bay? How many oyster reefs? A lot. But that's that's all kind of still up. So when I look into my uh, fishing regulations, I've been really interested to try to do catfishing, stuff like that. But then there's a very depressing list of all the rivers and spots where there are regulations about, they're not regulations, they're warnings about oh, yeah. not eating too much fish because they're all loaded with PCBs, I guess, from the 70s yep. and with mercury. So, but so all of those rivers drain out into the bay. So, are all the bay fish that are being eaten and going into the markets and the crabs, are they all loaded with this PCB crap? Some of the pollution problems of the rivers don't translate to the bay. For okay. example, mercury mercury in saltier, brackish waters doesn't bioaccumulate like oh, it does in wow. fresher water, which okay. doesn't mean we can ignore mercury. Mm -hmm. uh, PCBs are a problem. Yes, the bay, much as the rivers, has a depressing number of health advisories. Some mm. days I think if you're a pregnant nursing female, you can't eat crap. You know, the, all these warnings say, mm. especially if you're a pregnant nursing female. Mm. Uh, yeah, we have way too many uh, legacies of old industrial chemicals. PCB is particularly long lived. That, yeah. Uh, and uh, I guess for someone listening who doesn't know what those are, because I didn't, it was something from. I guess the 50s, 60s, 70s, it's like that was bleaching. PCBs were, uh, PCBs are not, they're, they're an industrial chemical. They mm -hmm. were used as insulators and mm. electrical transformers. Uh, and they're not acutely toxic at all. Like DDT, it wasn't that toxic, but it never goes away. Mm -hmm. It bioaccumulates. Mm. It would build up and make the shells of eagles' eggs thin, and it would make eagles irritable and nervous. That's just what you want, a nervous eagle on top of a thin-shelled egg. So mm -hmm. we didn't have many eagles. So, yeah, PCBs are, are still in the system. They're going to be in the system. 
Uh, it's funny, the, uh, even when the striped bass were crashing on the Chesapeake, everyone was wondering why. And a lot of people thought, must be toxic chemicals, because you can find trace amounts of almost mm. every chemical in mm. any fish. But then I looked up at the Hudson. It had a healthy population of striped bass. Mm. They were loaded with PCBs, mm. so much so that people couldn't catch them. Mm-hmm. And I started to think, I think it's overfishing mm-hmm. on the Chesapeake. And it's fascinating to me. It's we would. Uh, I'm convinced people would rather be able to blame a decline on some toxic bullet than have to admit they're catching too many. Mm. That's a hard thing to say, <laughs> we got to stop catching them. And we did. And mm. they came back. Oh. So there was the Hudson, fish loaded with chemicals, except they were healthy because no one was catching them so I, wow. I that made me suspect overfishing in the chesapeake and it was a hard thing to admit though because people don't want to stop catching it easier mm. to blame some industry mm. and i'm all for blaming industry don't get me wrong mm. but they've done a lot of harm but uh yeah often the uh what we need to do is just limit human activity um i think we'll wrap this up but because you said blame my feeling when I'm reading right now, you know, I've only read maybe like seven or eight of your essays, but I do feel like, um, whereas a lot of, you know, even BBC documentaries, which I absolutely love, yeah. um, right now it seems in vogue to go hard on guilt of just for being a human. And I feel like you don't do that in your writing and I think that that's really nice. Like, I, you definitely address it. There are major problems, but you, I don't feel like you go heavy on on the guilt trip. And I, I guess I'm just saying I kind of appreciate it. Like, it, you know, because sometimes it makes, you know, you finish one of these BBC documentaries and you're like, man, I should just go blow my head off. You know? Yeah, I, I don't know that that's productive. Now, the last column I wrote for the Baltimore Sun, I said something like, if in these last 600 columns I have ever offended someone, it was mostly because I meant to. Uh, <laughs> I didn't do it a lot. I did it selectively. But yes, if I offended you, it's probably because I meant to. I meant to. <laughs> you want so to. I, I said that. But I, I never felt it was productive generally to play snarky, gotcha stuff, mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. do a lot of guilting and blaming. I, I mean, yes, we bear a huge burden of guilt for of course, so many things, taking the friggin' continent from the Native Americans mm-hmm. just for starters, and we haven't even gotten to slavery. So, mm-hmm. yeah, and I mean, it, there should be a lot of guilt, but there are limits to where you can go with that. I mean, farmers are a big source of pollution, mm. but I see farmers as part of a food system that is dictated by all sorts of national policies aimed at cheap food. Mm. The French like good quality food, not cheap food. Mm. We like cheap food. Mm. And farmers don't have much choice if mm. they're going to farm in that. So while I write a lot about agricultural pollution, I don't find it productive to paint farmers as evil people. Yes, yes. I grew up with a lot of them. They're yes. not evil people any more than someone who drives a big SUV does it to harm the environment. So, And when uh, I was pondering, you know, when I was th- pondering about this, it, what came to mind is, there was an author I really like named Robert Greene. He's write, written these books that are kind of historical psychology a bit, but he wrote like the 48 Laws of Power and basically is talking about how power works. But why I've loved these books is because 
it's just about history. It's like how, um, you know, different historical figures have yeah. either been crushed by power or navigated power, etc. But one in one chapter that has always stuck with me, it's about how to ask for help. And you do not ask for help by making, uh, you know, another nation feel guilty. You don't say, yeah. hey, you owe me. Yeah. Because that always goes wrong. And the way to ask for help is to um, show a ben- mutual benefit. Yeah. So I, I feel like in a subtle way that you have done that. You're not placing blame on anybody. You're t- saying, here are the issues, and we all need to figure this stuff out. Well, I wish I had all the solutions. I sure don't. I I, I told you earlier, though, I, have, I was an econ major in college. I had no thought of being an environmental writer. But uh, I more and more uh, teach... Uh, economics as much as I do ecology in my environmental classes because I am convinced as long as we are driven by the current mantra of mainstream growth economics that if you're not growing you're dying it is the mission of government and mankind to constantly grow Mm -hmm. both physically and economically Uh, you can't grow forever any one species on a finite planet. Economics, they kind of know that if you get them for a beer in a bar at night, mm-hmm. but that's not that's not where their bread is buttered. It's it's buttered by corporate capitalism, mm-hmm. the grow or die. Mm-hmm. Environmentalism will never succeed in saving the bay, saving the planet, mm. as long as it has to operate within the context of grow forever. Mm. You just can't do that. There is a branch of economics called ecological economics, which is not very employable in corporate capitalist America, but I subscribe to those guys. They show, you know, the way we operate well, that's now, what you're Felipe, saying about the beaver. The way we operate with this grow or die economics, imagine if you went to a doctor and said, I'm worried about my weight. And he said, you have two choices, get fat or starve. Uh, That's what we say with economics. You have to grow forever or die. Mm. That's such bullshit. Any sensible person would say, isn't there a middle ground like (laughs) eating sensibly? (laughs) Oh, no, you got to keep eating or you're going to die. The middle path. That's what we do with our current economics is, is there's no middle ground. There's no such thing as enough. Mm. as mm. prosperity, but not hyper-prosperity. Mm. I mean, if we can't get to that point in our culture, environmentalism is always going to be uh, unsatisfying. Well, good place to end. Yeah. I thank you for this wonderful podcast. Thank you for telling your stories. Thank you for everything you've written. And I'm sure you've inspired a lot of people to care about uh, nature and the environment. And so where can people, which book of yours do you recommend maybe as the be, as a, the best to your intro to your writing and where can they get it? I, th- I think it's the one I'm fixing to write here at age 76. I uh, People should write me letters and say, write the damn book, Horton, stop talking about writing <laughs> it. No, I mean, most of my books, including some wonderful books of photos and essays I've done with Dave Harper in print, if they mm-hmm. Google Tom Horton books, I... I don't know. You know, Bay Country still still. I readable. love that one. It's a it's it's a good book. Bay Country. Uh, uh, I I like the the Smith Island book, but that's more on a particular place. So mm-hmm. yeah, Bay Country's Bay Country's fine. That's that's good. You know? Perfect. Yeah. But, Perfect. Uh, 
or read the Bay Journal where I do mm. a column. Mm -hmm. And read the Bay Journal even if I didn't do a column. It's a nonprofit monthly. It's free. Anybody in the United States who wants the Bay Journal mm. free every month can just write us and we'll mail it to them. Oh, well, I we're, didn't know that. I'm going to yeah. do that. Yeah, or you can get it online. Okay. And it's a, it's a darn good little newspaper. It's 16, 18 pages. Comes out every month. It's got great photos. It's it's a it, it's a I wish we weren't the only game in town. The hmm. fact the fact that we are doing better coverage of the environment than the Washington Post and mm. the Baltimore Sun, that is a sad commentary on what's happened to journalism. Mm. Uh, those two papers should be blowing us away every day, but they're not. And so. where when can we when and where can we expect to see the beaver, the watershed documentary? Oh, the uh, Water's Way, Thinking Like a Watershed, will be on the Bay Journal website by late summer or okay. fall. All of our films, High Tide in Dorchester, go to bayjournal.com and click on films or multimedia. And I'll put voila. a link. And it's free. Anybody, whether you're teaching a class or hosting a climate change meeting, you can stream those films on your computer. Perfect. And welcome to them. That's that's what we do. We put them on there for free. 